only a paper moon hanging over a cardboard sea. But it wouldn't be make believe if you believe in me. It is only a canvas sky sailing over a muslin tree. But it wouldn't be. The story of Dr. John R. Brinkley is a truly remarkable one. It might better be described as many stories, for John Brinkley was a singular figure in the treatment of impotence, a pioneer in radio broadcasting, a PR whiz, an astute politician, and a con man of epic proportions. Brinkley's incredible tale often turns up in collections of hoaxes and scams. This correspondent first read about the dubious doctor in the early 1990s. I was fascinated and wished someone would tell the story in full detail. Well, someone did last year. Author Pope Brock produced Charlatan, America's Most Dangerous Huckster, The Man Who Pursued Him, and The Age of Flim Flam. It sold very well and was critically well received, as we would add was his prior work, Indiana Gothic. Fortunately for us, Mr. Brock agreed to chat with us about John Brinkley. The quack who made himself the richest doctor in America and the AMA physician who finally stopped his trail of surgical destruction is a tale we are keen to explore. So with great pleasure, we say welcome to Radio Parallax, Pope Brock. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm keen to tell our listeners about, uh, about the surgeries which Brinkley did that were out of bounds and which made him famous. But before we do that, I'd like to have you set the stage with a description of the state of American medicine a century ago. Well, uh broad brush, the state of American uh, medicine was um, pretty much chaos, much more than I had ever realized before I started doing the research. As, uh, as late as the um, 1920s and 30s, when Brinkley uh, was really flourishing, uh, the, the AMA had um, remarkably little power. There were all kinds of different schools of medicine of um, various levels of quality, some lots and lots of quacks, some... Um, deluded, uh, sincere-type doctors. Uh, there was um, mainstream medicine struggling to, to make itself heard. Uh, but um, it was thousands of these little fiefdoms um, fighting each other and in competition um, all, all over the country. There was no central regulation to speak of. Yeah, I was, uh, as a physician, I was stunned to learn from your book, which I did not know, that by the end of the 19th century... Most states repealed licensing requirements for doctors. <laughs> Wasn't that something? Yeah. Uh, yes, yes. God bless Andrew Jackson. Well, <laughs> once he, he came in, and he was the common man, the first uh, president to really represent um, the, the log cabin type of American, and everybody got so enthusiastic about that, they just said, well, anybody can be a doctor. Let's give every man a chance. So um, all but three states, this is in the early, um, in the 1820s or 30s, around in there, um, actually repealed licensing requirements for doctors so that everybody could have a shot. So you can imagine what that turned into. Well, uh, John Brinkley decides at some point he'd like to get a medical degree. He's got some options of schools that, well, today we'd probably call them more like alternative practices. Can you talk a bit about that, too? He, he decided he wanted a medical degree, I think, um, more out of... Um, more for business reasons, uh, <laughs> more to make himself more credible uh, than uh, because he actually wanted to learn anything. I mean, when he, he was a teenager out, of, out in North Carolina. He was already selling uh, patent medicine off the back of a wagon. So his, his career path was set early on. Um, but he did figure out at some point that a diploma would, uh, 
would, would help him, which he never got, incidentally, but he did, he, he did go after it. He went to medical school of a sort in Chicago uh, for three years, around 1910 or so, um, spent more of his time in the local bars than in the classroom, and then, and then finally abandoned it because uh, he decided it was easier to buy a diploma um, in Kansas City. Well, you got a, a number of great uh, quotes in the book. One I love is on this very topic. Uh, I guess that the, the surgeon that was teaching Brinkley failed him uh, in his surgical class due to, he said, quote, his attendance not being regular and because of his indulgence in alcohol, end quote. <laughs> not, not good for a surgeon. No, no. But uh, like many other things, uh, Brinkley shrugged it off and, uh, and, and went right on because um, he... He, he seized on radio early on, and so he was able to overpower um, anyone who, who, who raised a voice against him simply by cranking up the wattage and making himself heard, you know, all over the Midwest and then beyond. I, I definitely want to want to talk about that, but at this point, I want to start where you began the book: a description of how Brinkley lost his license. It comes a little bit later in the story, but he was demonstrating a surgery, and it didn't convince the uh, the powers that be. But it had earned him great notoriety. Can we talk about how Brinkley got got be, got to be known as Goat Gland Brinkley? This was the practice that put him on the map. This was after he had knocked around uh, a little after the turn of the century as a um, so-called electromedic doctor. He'd been trying various sort of minor quackeries, searching for the thing that would really make his name and make his fortune. And uh, at the time, although it's largely forgotten today, there was this buzz, um, not just nationally, but internationally, about the whole idea of glands and what glands could do, the magic of glands, um, the uh, pancreatic um, connection to uh, diabetes. This is about the time that they are discovering that the pancreas produces insulin, so it's a big, it's a, it's a big breakthrough taking place right then. Yes, exactly, and that helped lend credibility to all of these other nutball theories <laughs> about what glands could do. And this was coming out of uh, France and deeper into Europe, Russia, and, and also into America. Now, there was, a, there was a guy named Dr. Voronoff in France who sincerely believed that uh, implanting monkey glands, uh, you know, talking about monkey testicles into men, and various uh, sort of arrangement of other monkey glands into females, could make a person live for 150 years. I mean, he, he devoted 20, 25 years of his career uh, to trying to prove this. He, he, he really believed it. And there was a, a guy named um, Lidston, uh, a professor of, um, medical professor at the University of Illinois. He, he actually surgically gave himself an extra testicle because he believed it would prolong his life and, uh, and, and uh, you know, power him further on. So, I, I mean, but these, these, were, these were true believers. Brinkley, what, what Brinkley's particular sliver of genius was, was to take these gropings of, of, of other sincere doctors, researchers, and turn them into this fantastic quackery, which was to, in a phrase, transplant goat testicles into impotent men. In a, in, in a phrase, that was his, uh, that, that was what he sold. Um, it started when a farmer came uh, wandering into his tiny little clinic in a little town in Kansas in 1917. He was complaining about how he couldn't get it going anymore, and they're looking out the window and <laughs> the livestock, and uh, the farmer says, uh, too bad I don't have billy goat nuts. And the light bulb went off, and... <laughs> history began. So, so I, it's a little unclear who paid who for the original experiment, but 
one way or another, the farmer lay down, frankly brought in uh, the goat nuts, stuck them in, and sent the guy off. And um, a couple weeks later, you know, after the healing process and all, the, the farmer comes back. He's got a big, uh, big smile on his face. About a year later, he and his wife had a baby, baby boy, named it Billy. Brinkley's name was made. You can imagine how this uh, just, just rolled, the publicity just rolled out of Kansas and all over the place, in part because, of course, so much of um, what makes a man potent or not uh, lives in the mind. Right. And as long as, as, as long as the patient didn't get infected, there was a fairly good chance that he was going to uh, believe um, he had been helped. This really strikes me because doctors today could have used like high quality testosterone, and it's a, that has a very minor role to play in in, in treating impotence. But here's a, here's Brinkley putting a, a goat testicle inside the body. It's just going to get reabsorbed. I mean, it can't work very well at all, and yet he was a sensation. He, he was well. He was a, a master psychologist and a master propagandist. I mean, before long, he had people. You know, streaming into town with trailing goats behind him, banging on his door, and you know, pretty soon he had his own herd of goats out back, and the, the, the man would go out and browse the herd and choose the goat he felt most simpatico with, and it was just—it uh, it sounds nuts now, but it—and it, um, it, well, it, it was—it was, but he—he uh, he was so good at, at the personal touch, and with this radio station that he set up as early as 1923 which was very, very early. He saw the potential for radio advertising, and that's how he you know, kept pumping the word out and bringing in more customers. You point out in the book that this is a time when doctors were, were basically advised not to advertise, and, and they did not. But, but again, uh, Brinkley's talent seems to be in, in mass psychology. He realizes that advertising is the way he needs to go. Not only that, but he realized, uh, he was the first person to realize, I think, that... Um, that the future of radio lay in advertising. Back in, in, in 1923, it was brand new. People were still sort of dazzled that it worked at all, that you could, uh, that you could pick up anything out of the air, no matter how fragmentary. And, but Brinkley saw the future. Right? He, he set up that 50,000-watt station, and he, he saw future radio with sales for, for, for several years with, the, uh, with, with corporate America looking down their nose at it. He was bringing in customers by the thousands, and it, it really took the market crash of 29 for corporate America to begin to say, you know what, maybe this guy's onto something, so uh, we're going to try it too. I'm speaking broad brush here, right. not as if other people weren't advertising, but in the great sweep of history, that's kind of, that's how it works. Yes, uh, he was operating at this time out of Kansas with all of these, the, these farmers uh, in that area of the country, but there's a fascinating interlude that he did almost become a notable California quack when he was invited out here in the early 20s, um, but apparently uh, his nemesis, uh, Morris Fishbein uh, from the AMA, came out to Cal or at least influenced the California decision to send him packing, the, f the first of their skirmishes. Yes, that, that, that's right. Harry, um, Harry Chandler, who was... Uh, the uh, owner and publisher of the Los Angeles Times was a big fan of Brinkley's and invited him out to L.A. to um, put ghost, goat testicles into some of his uh, staff and some judges and Hollywood people and so on. <laughs> so Brinkley goes out and has a, gets all kinds of, he gets marvelous publicity from, um, from the L.A. Times and um, decides to set up shop there. I mean, why not? It was a great hotbed of quackery anyway and the temperature you know that he, he had an ocean view you know why not um 
But there was um, the editor of the Journal of the American Medical Association, which was at that time a small and um, almost powerless little trade publication. Dr. Morris Fishbein took on Brinkley as a, as a cause. Uh, the, the, the great um, motivator of Fishbein's career was nailing quacks, and there were thousands and thousands and thousands, but, but Brinkley became his Moby Dick. He realized that Brinkley was the, the, the worst of the worst, and um, he set out to bring him down. It took, it took years, but Fishbein's first strike was to um, dig up records of jail time <laughs> Brinkley had done back in uh, his, his earlier days, and, and uh, he sort of queered the deal for him in, uh, in California. The book is Charlatan, America's Most Dangerous Huckster, The Man Who Pursued Him, and The Age of Flim Flam. We're speaking with author Pope Brock. The book is filled with these wonderful little little uh, anecdotes, little, little curious moments. And one that struck me talking about this episode in California was that people here, after he was sent back, he was not granted a permanent medical license. And they realized there was so much fraud involved. Agents from California went out to Kansas to arrest him. And the governor basically told him to get lost. That's right. He, he said in so many words... Um, we have been making a fortune off of Brinkley, and we intend to continue making a fortune. Uh, so go away. And, um, and the, uh, the, the state extradition papers, whatever they were, uh, didn't have the force to compel Brinkley's extradition. Well, the battle goes on. Morris Fishbein is continuing to put Brinkley in the crosshairs in JAMA. He does convince some doctors that, you know, there's nothing to this goat gland stuff. But clearly he's losing the PR battle because Brinkley's got radio behind him. And it, I was stunned to realize in 1930, I guess his station, KFKB, is the number one station in the United States. He's got a pharmaceutical association that's just minting money for him and people that are associated with him. And about that time, he's at, he's at the top of the hill, and there's a sort of a turn of events going against him. Yeah, that's, that's right. I, I, I would like to insert that part of the reason his radio show and his radio station was so popular was not just because he got on the air and talked about goat testicles you know, <laughs> 24 hours a day. I mean, he was an old medicine show guy, and he, he, he understood that part of the way to sell what he had to sell was to bring on uh, music acts and uh, language teachers and Hawaiian bands and all, all, these, um, all these crop reports. He, he wanted to make himself entertaining and indispensable to the, to the average man. So that's, he, he was really smart in the way he was, he was uh, powering himself along. But yes, so um, late 20s, he platformed off of this um, goat testicle thing into something called um, medical question box. And that's what really got him in, uh, that, that's what really got the medical establishment's attention, what, what riveted them. Because up to then, if he, if he was shaving off the uh, goat gland trade, it didn't really bother them, but Brinkley came up with this thing called medical question box where people could write in, tell him uh, their symptoms, and then he would look at the letter and diagnose them over the air. And um, <laughs> I might add, not very well, it sounds like. <laughs> well, and not, and not very well, yes, exactly. Uh, exactly, because at the same time he began sucking patients out of waiting rooms all over the central United States, then reports start coming back of burst bladders and these horrible infections and things like that. You know? So now Brinkley's hitting the medical establishment uh, where they live, so it was a kind of a combination of we have to save these people and we have to save our practices you know, that mobilized the forces against him. So by 1930, there was this, there was this great 
collision between the AMA and Brinkley. And of course, we should note that when people are calling up giving him descriptions, not coincidentally, every time he's recommending a cure, it's, it's something he's selling. Again, a pioneer in marketing. Oh, yes, right. He, he had um, several dozen pharmacists um, in his enthralled, in economic thrall to him, selling unlabeled medicines. They were, they were marked just by numbers with no ingredients on them to, uh, to sort of heighten their uh, mysterious quality. And uh, one thing a quack always does is say, no one has my secrets. Right. All right. I'm the only one who knows. So that was part of how he worked out this whole, he had dozens of these drugs on the shelves and was making something like 600% profit on every one of them. All of this um, he just becomes way too successful, way too conspicuous. So that finally Fishbein and um, some uh, people uh, helped him, got his medical license yanked in 1930 and his radio license at virtually the same time. And it looked at that point in 1930 as if Brinkley um, was finished. I mean, Fishbein walked off sort of dusting his hands, and he really thought that was the end of it. He was wrong. This is the part of the story I absolutely love. As you relate it, he's got these twin calamities, and a lesser man might have crumbled. Instead, John R. Brinkley decides to run for governor. He did. Five, <laughs> five days after he lost his um, radio license, he announces for governor. And he is so popular. He, he's coming in late, so he has to be a write-in candidate. But he is so popular. He, he, he goes around, and he draws crowds. They're bigger than any politician has ever drawn in the state. You know, Roosevelt, Wilson, anybody who had gone through Kansas had ever drawn crowds like Brinkley, in part because people thought of him as their friend because he had been murmuring to them over the radio for all these years. And because um, the Depression had hit, he looked like a victim of the authorities. The people felt like victims of the authorities. And, and, and also because he was the great healer. And who does this remind you of but Jesus Christ? And that's what Brinkley uh, played on relentlessly. He would stand up on, the, on these big stages with a sea of people in front of him you know, and throw his arms wide and say, I know how Jesus felt. And the crowd would roar. You know? So, I mean, it was just, it was really spectacular. It was a kind of, you know, this televangelist sort of precursor of that kind of thing going along with everything else. This is this is how hypnotic a personality he was. And, and I think one of the most astonishing parts, by most accounts, and I think you, as you explain in the book, the Democrats and Republicans look around and realize, oh my God, this guy is, is doing things no one's thought of. He's flying around in airplanes. He's bringing his whole entourage. He's drawing these giant crowds. And they basically collaborate to realize we're going we're gonna to deny him the election. A, a rare bit of bipartisan cooperation. Yes, that's, that's right. Not the first election that was ever stolen, but interesting in that it did, uh, did involve the, the, the cooperation of the Republicans and the Democrats. Anybody but him. So just a few days before the election, they changed the rules. They said he was coming in as a write-in candidate, so the election commission came out and said uh, what the, 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 the Kansas Supreme Court standard of the intent of the voter, well, we're not going to use that. You, you, you have to spell his name exactly. In fact, you have to write... Dr. J.R. Brinkley, don't forget the E, you know, all those things. You have to get it exactly right in order for your vote to count. And as a result, thousands and thousands and thousands of his uh, constituents, you know, of their votes wound up being uh, dumped in the river. So, he, yes, he, he essentially had the election um, stolen for, uh, from him, I believe. 
poetic justice, perhaps, but nevertheless. <laughs> so he's denied the governorship, but, you know, Brinkley, say what you want about him. He was never a guy short on ideas. As you document, then he gets another brainwave and figures, okay, I can't broadcast uh, here in the U.S. I think I'll head south to sunny Mexico. How about this guy? I mean, r- really, <laughs> he, he was a psychopath. By now, he had, he had murdered some dozens of people. I mean, there were, there were document, documentation at his 1930 hearing that 40, 50 people um, had died under the knife with him, and, and, and God knows how many more with this medical question box and so on. He's a threat uh, of major proportions, you know, a real psychopath. But he's, he's got this American uh, inventiveness, and get up and go, and I'm not licked, you know. He, he, he thinks, okay, I've lost my radio license. What am I going to do? He decides, if I can just go across the, just get just over the river, the Rio Grande, into Mexico, I could put up the biggest radio station in the world. The United States can't touch me. And that's exactly what he did. He went down to Mexico City with suitcases full of money, and he talked to the Mexicans about it. And Mexicans had a big grudge against, you know, several grudges against the United States anyway. So they said, go ahead. And that's, that's what he did in the early 1930s. He, he built this, what became known as a border blaster, uh, which within a couple of years was cranking out a million watts, which was far and away the most powerful radio station in the world. Now the gospel of John Brinkley is being heard, well, virtually all over the Western uh, Hemisphere. And you men, you're holding back, many of you right now listening to me on these morning and evening broadcasts. And you know you're sick. You know your prostate's infected and diseased. And you know that unless some relief comes to you, that you're going to be in the undertaker's parlor on the old cold slab being embalmed for a funeral. Well, why do you hold back? Why do you twist around the old couple bar? Why do you delay longer and take chances when I'm offering you these low rates, this easy work, this lifetime guarantee of service plan? Come at once to the Brinkley Hospitals, Little Rock, Arkansas, before it's everlastingly too late. Well, well, I must say that, uh, you know, a million watts, 50,000 watts, KGO, big, big radio station we have here on the West Coast. I've heard them in Costa Rica, and I've heard them in Hawaii, and I have a hard time imagining what a million watts must have done being blasted around the world. Well, there were these reports coming back that the Finnish were listening to him, you know, <laughs> that he was being picked up in the Java Sea. Um, he was uh, skipping off uh, Alaska and into whatever section of Russia that is up there. And... Um, so, yeah, I mean, he, he was every, and, and of course, a signal that powerful was, was wreaking havoc with a number of American stations, because, you know, they were the closest to him. And so, you know, some of these big stations like WSB in Atlanta and uh, Chicago, they were, they were wringing their hair because he was, um, he, he was obliterating their programming. You know, people would tune in for Amos and Andy or something, and there would be Brinkley talking about, um, you know, prostate uh, <laughs> treatments or whatever he had on his mind so he was and then uh, he he became so successful then that all kinds of other quacks and crazies and nutcases um, all of them enterprising came streaming across uh, into Mexico and set up radio stations of their own and this is what generated this whole what became known as the border blaster phenomenon there were about a dozen of these then by the late 30s stretched all across uh, the border 
pumping all sorts of crazy advertising and, and pernicious nonsense and rants, uh, you know, you know same religious rants and so on, pumping it all back into uh, the United States, plus music. That's what ultimately became Brinkley's greatest legacy, even though it was the last thing he had on his mind. He, 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 he wanted to sell stuff, and he did. But by bringing country acts and so on, giving them their first national, international exposure, um, he and the people who, who came after him were really responsible for giving country music its first uh, big platform and to waking America up to this, what had been a regional music. Uh, he, had, um, he hired the Carter family, um, at that point just uh, big stars in the South and West, but um, not known at all uh, outside of that. They worked there for three or four years, and he's, he's the one who... Um, helped make them the first family of country music and uh, wound up just having a big effect on pop culture, even though, uh, as I say, he was just interested in making yet another buck. It's just a little aside, but along the way you mentioned that, you know, he's the guy that in basically invented pre-programmed uh, commercials. I mean, it's just, again, he was in a way a dark genius and quite an innovator. That's, that's exactly right. He originally came up with um, pre-recorded, you know, the Disc technology was, was very primitive, and he sat down and sort of noodled around with it. Originally, his idea was just to um, record his music acts on it so that he could pretend to be broadcasting them live, <laughs> you know. Right. And then it dawned on him, well, geez, you know, you can, you can think of all the advertising. I mean, you can just <laughs> kind of slam these things in one after the other, and, uh, you know. So um, he really made, uh, really made a lot of hay. Well, we're running a little long on time, but I'm having such a great time, that, and it's such a great story that I can't help it. But, but we, I, we, we have to kind of come to the end of this. It's the, it's the 30s. John Brinkley's making millions while the average GP makes maybe $3,000 annually. He's cruising the world buying first-class yachts. But Dr. Fishbein has, uh, has continued to track him, and there comes a fateful showdown down in Texas that, uh, that changes everything. T tell us about the, the end of the story. Yes, there, there does indeed. Fishbein has been poking at him, slashing at him, whatever way he, he could, um, off and on over the, um, over the years. And that's how the book's set up, essentially, as a sort of a chase or a you know, Fishbein in pursuit of Brinkley. But it wasn't until the late 30s that because there, was no, there were no criminal laws that covered what Brinkley was doing, no matter how many people he killed, maimed, Families ruined. Right. He, he, he couldn't. He couldn't be touched. But Fishbein realized finally that the, the way to get him was to get him into civil court. Uh, Fishbein taunted him, taunted Brinkley into suing for libel, and that was his great mistake because uh, they met in a uh, courtroom in Del Rio, Texas, in 1939, and um, that was the um, tremendous climax to uh, Brinkley's career because then finally on the witness stand. All the things that he'd been doing over the years were, were, were picked apart and laid out in front of, uh, had other doctors testifying and so on. And so on. that's what put him away. And, and shockingly, you relate in the book, uh, what really kills him is Brinkley, oddly enough, turns out to be his own worst enemy on the witness stand. Yes, yes. He, he was, I think he had lifted off at that point into, an, an, I mean, if you stood on a stage saying, I know how Jesus felt, and you've had... Uh, <laughs> 50,000 people agree with you, you know. His, his ego grew so great that he thought he was untouchable, and so he thought he could just sit there and do another radio broadcast, essentially just, just 
fog it past all these people in the courtroom the way he'd been uh, doing with his radio audience. So he very smugly got up there and testified day after day, and it wasn't until you know, some hours passed that he began to realize it wasn't going quite the way he had hoped. Well, Pope, I, I've thought about Goat Glenn Brinkley many an evening on late-night TV. I'm watching these ads for male enhancement, and, and, and you know, medical science says there's no method of enlargement, and, and, and I would just— I keep wondering, how can they sell all these pills? And I guess that answer, of course, is that valuable ally of quack and legitimate physician alike, the placebo effect. Yes, exactly. As, as I said, if there was ever an area in which the placebo effect kicks in, runs rampant, um, it's, in, uh, it, it's in that. It's in the male potency area. Well, Pope, as we close, I, 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 I can't decide what it is about the Brinkley story that's most amazing. There are so many things. And uh, do you have a what's your choice oh my goodness it's tough. Um, to me what surprised me the most was his um his his effect on um i was saying pop culture country music after that after he I mean, wolfman jack you know 20 years after brinkley's death that radio station's still there and wolfman jack's in his chair right you know and Coming out of Mexico then, it's, it's blues, it's rock and roll, it's Little Richards, all this stuff that the parents don't want you to hear. Um, this, this was the um, descendant of what, the direct descendant of what uh, Brinkley had, had spawned. Uh, so that, I, I don't know, you, you pull the thread and you just you see how, what, what kind of an impact he wound up having on, um, uh, on, on pop culture, music, I mean, I don't want to get too inflated about it like he created the modern world, but he, he had an enormous effect on uh, the way teens grew up and, you know, what all that led to. Well, I guess, he, I guess he personifies the fact that every cloud may have a silver lining. I guess, I guess, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got Little Richard on the one hand, you've got goat testicles on the other. But. <laughs> well, yeah, a guy that spans Alf Landon beats him for governor in 32 to Wolfman Jack. There's not many people you can say something like that about. Well, I, I really I, I enjoyed your book immensely. It's just a hell of a story, and I'm wondering, you know, how come no one? How you were the first person to write this about this extensively, and I, I just uh, I wonder why no one else noticed what a what a barn burner this was. Well, um, there there was a book about him in 1960 um, when he was still fairly fresh in some people's minds. I'll tell you, I, uh, he's a very tough subject to present in a straight biography. I guess so. But, you know, because he's a psychopath, and because you can't, <laughs> you know how a biography, you, you, you want to find your way into it somehow, usually, and I mean, Hitler would be an exception, but most, you know, you, biographies, you kind of f find your way and identify with some aspect. And, you know, there's, there's something um, really um, strange and um, distant and puzzling about uh, Brinkley's mentality for all the fireworks that he set off. When I fell on Fishbine and realized that that I had a, a pursuit story here, so I could cut back and forth uh, between Brinkley's antics and Fishbine's attempts to stop him, and that Fishbine himself had this uh, whole other he was a, he was a window into the 20s and 30s in a whole other way that. Now I had a story, you know. Now I now I had something with some drama and some and some pace. I I, I think that made the difference. I mean, it certainly made a great difference to me in the in the um, in the writing of it. Well, it's a hell of a good book, and I certainly appreciate that uh, you you took the time to do it.
charlatan, America's most dangerous huckster, the man who pursued him, and the age of flimflam. We've been speaking with author Pope Brock. This is one hell of a good read. I can't recommend it highly enough, and I hope, dear listener, that uh, you will go out and uh, read it. Pope Brock, th- thank you so much for speaking with us. Well, that's great. I really do appreciate your, uh, your, your having me on like this. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. It's the Barnum and Bailey world, just as funny as it can be. But it wouldn't be make-believe if you believe in me.